Hi, Nick Vince here. This week on The Chattering Hour, I'm joined by a man with over 300 credits to his name in an over 50-year career. In fact, this year marks the 50th anniversary of one of his very early films, a little rat movie called Willard. We talk about that, his very early film last summer, working with Daniel Day-Lewis on The Crucible and with Arthur Miller and the quote that inspired him to take up acting. We talk about that and much, much more. Up next on The Chattering Hour, Bruce Davison. And we're back with Bruce Davison. As I mentioned, he's got over 300 film and TV credits to his name. He's also an Oscar-nominated actor for his supporting role in Longtime Companion. And he's also a director and has a couple of Golden Globes on his bookshelf. Let's get to it. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you for having me. So I want to do, I want to take you right back, if I may. I want to take you right back to Philadelphia, where you grew up. Oh. You, you grew up. What was well, we your- have to go back. <laughs> okay. All right. It's especially in a snowstorm that's happening there right now. Probably. Oh, is it? Yeah. yeah. We, yes. We've Everybody got snowed in. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. We've. That's true. In further north in London, we've got yeah, tiny. My son fled New York for Maine. <laughs> figured he'd outrun the storm but he's up there now so. oh right right but for you so what was your childhood like what were you into as a kid Whew. um raised by a single mother my father and mother divorced when um I, I was about three right my father was a draftsman for the uh army engineers but before that he had come home from the war and he was uh, not in the best shape right emotionally and that that marriage didn't last they were in their 20s and it was you know don't sit under the apple tree and um so by the time he got back it was uh, it was pretty rough so i would see him on weekends i would spend weekends with my father and the rest of the time my mother raised me and she raised me as a single mother who was working in philadelphia and working for john b kelly I don't know if you know John B. Kelly, Kelly for Brickwork in Philadelphia. Um, he was Grace Kelly's father. Oh, and right. He was a big um, Mahoff uh, in Philadelphia, big power broker in, in Philadelphia. Right. So she worked for him, um, uh, among others. Right. Um, and uh, I grew up in Philadelphia, basically outside in, in the suburbs. Right. In, uh, in the same place Tina Fey comes from. Drexel right, Hill. right, 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 right. So what were you, were you watching films a lot as a kid? Oh, well, I grew up on television, you know, there were three channels then, Jesus, God, am I old. Um, but there, uh, there was uh, every, every day after school, there were um, Flash Gordon serials that they had, and they would play Flash Gordon serials. <clears throat> And then on the weekends, my father would take me to see the same movie over and over again for three years, which was my favorite, King Solomon's Mines, with uh, Stuart Granger and Deborah Carr. And, uh, you know, I would try to convince 
people that I knew what I was saying by, don't sit there, ants. Mm. Jungle, everything is eaten and being eaten. And, and so I, that was sort of, I, I started being an actor uh, when I was young and uh, uh, Claude Rains was a big influence too because I had a little, my Aunt Delpha gave me a Bible record, you know, a little Bible record that had uh, Claude Rains doing interpretations of uh, uh, David and Goliath and Joseph in his coat of many colors. And I, uh, at a young age, was a great mimic. I was a good mimic as a kid, which showed me the way in. And I, if I ever had to go to bed and my mother was having company or there were relatives there, my uncle was living with us too, I would say, this is the story of David and Goliath, the young shepherd boy. And he went down to the stream and he chose five smooth stones <gasps> and he put them in his sling and he went off to meet the giant. And they'd all fall out of their chairs. They think, oh, this is great, a five-year-old doing claw raids. <laughs> so that's how I kept from going to bed and I would get to the top of the stairs and they said, who tells me? And, and, and David, uh, David was calm. And he swung the sling round his head and he let it fly. And oh, and I do the giant and I fall down the steps and they, they applaud and, you know, I get to stay up. <laughs> do you know any more? I said, well, there's David and there's Joseph and his coat with many colors. So I got to do that. Thing. So Claude Rains was a big influence. Right, right, right. But when you came to go to um, Penn State, you were actually majoring in art rather than yes. acting. Yeah. Well, I started as an art major. Right. Though, which was real. That, that's a whole other interesting story. And in itself, I, uh, um, I started as an art major and, and started painting and stuff. And I really wanted to go to art school. But my parents said, you don't know what you want. You're 17. You're a kid. And, and I said, oh, I know what I want. I want to be. And they said, well, here's what you're going to do. You're going to get a liberal uh, education, Penn State University. So I went to Penn State and I took uh, during uh, one course, I took a theater history appreciation course. And that was it. I mean, I had a friend who I was up there with and she said uh, why don't you audition for this play we were eating ice cream cones walking by and said free auditions and i went in and i didn't get the part but i um, really got the bug and, and it just suddenly hit me and then um there was a place called schwab auditorium at penn state and it's where gene kelly first danced on stage it's this rickety old uh, auditorium and upstairs they had this place, the green room, and they were rehearsing plays. And I went upstairs, I heard all this raucous noise and, oh, darling, and I walked in and I thought, these are, these are my people. <laughs> you know, they just were, you know, over the top theatrical romantics who were all just crazy and so I guess that was the beginning of what later would become the hippies uh, for me or, you know, the outliers. Right. But suddenly I felt, okay, this is, this is the kind of people that I connect with. So right. I got involved in theater there and I uh, felt completely in love with the theater. And um, 
also, I fell in love with my, my TA for one of my history classes of a woman named Teresa Germanisi. And God, she, she was so beautiful. And she was 30 and I was 19. And that's another movie. But she said, you're going to outgrow me. And uh, I'm taking you to New York because you're a, you're a big fish in a little pond here. And, and they're starting a new program uh, at NYU called the theater arts, you know, uh, which eventually it evolved into the Tisch program, which is what it is today. But at the right. time, it was the first class you know, run by Robert Corrigan and, and um, Ted Hoffman from the Tulane Drama Review and Carnegie Institute. Right. And they had started a group and they had auditioned these kids all over the country, like 6,000, and they picked a group of... I don't know, 120 or something, and then threw them into this boot camp actors thing, sort of competing with Juilliard. And uh, it was Barry Bostwick and Jeannie Berlin and Bud Coach and uh, uh, a lot of people. Uh, Andre Gregory was teaching there, and it was quite a time. Uh, David Lander, Michael McKeon. Um, so it was great great training ground, uh, Liz Torres. So um, uh, the, the, these were people that I went to school with. And then after three years, I sort of graduated, sort of, I guess. I By that time, I had gotten into Lincoln Center carrying a roast pig for Lee J. Cobb and King Lear. And, um, you know. <laughs> wow. Wow. So I was going to move you on to, to 1969. You made the film Last Summer. Was that your prof your first professional film? Work? Yes, that was my first uh, professional film. I had had a difficult summer trying to get uh, work. It was a very, um, I, I was sort of at the end of my rope as a young man. You always think you're at the end of your rope as a young man, as a young man. I wasn't, but uh, I remember walking in to audition for a play in a seersucker suit, and it was 100 degrees in New York and riding the subway and getting there. And I finally found myself sitting on a bench running my lines, and there was a an older gentleman in his 60s, looks like me now, in a same seersucker suit. And he looked over and he said, so you were... Uh, Broadway, pretty cool, huh? And I said, yeah. He said, yeah, well, I've been trying for 57 years. I've never quite gotten there yet. And I thought, oh, God, <laughs> what have I done? What have I chosen as a profession? I remember falling down that subway thinking, oh, God, what have I chosen for myself? But uh, luckily, uh, I auditioned for Frank Perry two weeks later and ended up uh, – having a, uh, a part that changed my life, which was a film called Last Summer right. in 1968. Right. And this, I mean, this had Barbara Hershey, Richard Thomas, yeah. uh, Catherine Burns. And it was, I have to be honest, I've not seen the film. I've seen the trailer. Yeah. It looks really dramatic and difficult and challenging. How, what well, was it was. Like? And it was, um, you know, a, a pretty brutal rape scene at the end of it, uh, which was... Um, not something that had been done on American cinema. He was trying to go for wild strawberries, you know, like that Bergman had done, but mm. uh, Frank Perry and Eleanor Perry, it was, uh, so it, it caused, uh, it was a big hit and it caused a lot of, um, 
action and and with the one girl and it got nominated Catherine Burns got nominated for best supporting actor for an Oscar that year she did that two other pictures and then never worked again um she she kind of quit and you know, I just realized she just died last year and uh, um but she was a brilliant actress she just it just it's a it's a lot of hard knocks and she just wasn't up for that yeah 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 and no, I yes I can understand that entirely. Yeah. But then you followed that up with another film, um, Strawberry Statement, about wow. peaceful student yeah. protests. And now what was that like? Well, I flew to New York to audition. I mean, I flew from New York to uh, Los Angeles to audition for uh, this big MGM picture that they were doing a student revolution at the time was... Uh, you know, and this was before Kent State, but right. the, the cauldron was bubbling. And uh, I, uh, I ended up auditioning for Erwin Winkler and, and Stuart Hagman uh, for the film Getting the Part. Uh, I was going to do, um, look, was it Look Homeward Angel or uh, no, All Wilderness. I was supposed to do All Wilderness at the Ford Theater for Ted Mann and uh, and I, I couldn't do that. So that was a tough call to call him to say, I, I have to go Hollywood. <laughs> you know. So I, I got sucked in. Pinocchio uh, entered Pleasure Island and, and <laughs> in Hollywood for the rest. Huh? How much, I mean, it's about the student, right? So you say, how much did you identify with the students? The students? Yeah. Well, I identified with them. It was really interesting because I was caught between sort of a rock and a hard place because it was a big corporate MGM take on the student revolution. And, you know, people were coming out of the bushes saying, can you steal a bullhorn from these pigs and give it to us? And then the uh, CNO was radio Mike, the director running out and saying, what are you trying to do here? <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was quite an interesting uh, cauldron at the time because it was MGM and, you know, lots of 50-year-old guys walking around with bell-bottom pants with ribbons down their side of their things and, and, <laughs> and um, me being, you know, just a kid trying to figure out uh, who's in control here what's who's telling this story uh what's happening and to me certain things were but i got to be friends with israel horowitz who was a playwright who wrote the uh screenplay and he said i don't know i i wrote this part for a jew and you're you look like a nazi he says i don't want to cast this young kid he looks like a nazi in this part but we became friends and we <laughs> got to know each other over the years. Right, right, right. And then you went on to, a little later on, you went on to do a film for which is now the 50th anniversary this year, which is Willard. Oh, oh yes, Willard the Rats. Willard the Rats. How did, was this just a call and you auditioned? For, oh. Yeah, well, yeah, that's what it was. I went to... Um, 20th Century Fox, and I auditioned for Danny Mann. And um, he said, yeah, well, that's, that's good, but uh, you got to see if the, your co-star will get along with you. And he took me out to, I guess, Van Nuys or something. There was this guy named Mo DeSesso with a garage full of rats, uh, all in cages and stuff. And he got this one out that looked like a rabbit, uh, and he put it on my shoulder. 
And he said, you think you two can get along? And Rat started kissing my ear, and I went, yeah, we'll get along. And that was it. We were, <laughs> I got the part. <laughs> I got the part. Yeah, you- that was Ben, the original, one of the original Bens. There were a lot of them. Different ones did different tricks. but Sure. Uh, they all retired to Van Nuys and got a swimming pool and started dating gerbils, I guess. <laughs> well, you, I mean, had you had a lot of pets as a kid or is this just something? Oh, well, I, did have a hamster. Oh, I had a rabbit named Peter, which did, uh, you know, uh, we were, we lived in a, a duplex in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania, and it didn't get much, you know, uh, uh environment i didn't get mm. to walk the rabbit alone but there were so there were a lot of little rabbit turds on the linoleum floor and my mother got mad because the the pea stained um, sort of uh, um, did some bad things to the linoleum so uh, he, peter didn't last too long <laughs> right but i, I get off to the forest <laughs> But I mean, apart from the rats, you obviously you also worked with Elsa Lancaster. And oh, Elsa Hall. was just she was wonderful. I, I had the best time with her, and we became good friends. I would uh, go to her house, and she had a she had the greatest sense of humor. You know, just what you see, just Elsa. She would say, "Well, first of all, when a director is giving you a load of codswallop." say, oh, that's very interesting. Let me try to incorporate that into what I'm doing and then do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> so that was Elsa. But she had, a, she had a wonderful stone that she'd found on the beach on her mantelpiece with a big, looked like a profile with a big nose on it. She called it her De Gaulle stone. That <laughs> 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 was Elsa. <laughs> what about... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. for, for those of you who don't ref, uh, get the reference, look up um, General de, de Gaulle. And, uh, do have the oh, yeah. Sorry, I keep forgetting where we're speaking to. <laughs> generation. <you know. laughs> I immediately got the uh, cover of Day of the Jackal in my in my head with a profile. Oh, yeah. Gaulle, yeah. What about Ernest Borknine? Oh, Ernie was great. Um, Ernie was too. You know, he got really crazy one day that a rat ran up his leg. <laughs> So that was great acting. Um, and I, I hit him in the foot accidentally with this pole in one take, and, he, and suddenly it was a different Ernie that I know. And he grabbed the pole from me, swung from my head, and went right through the set. And it's in the movie. It's a great take in um, towards the end there, you know. But he was wonderful. And, and I said, you know, our Ernie, what's, what's the best acting advice you can give me? He says, well, here's the best advice I can give you. Never go to bed angry at your wife. Stay up all night long and talk it out. Now, I've learned that the hard way, but you got to do that because that'll help not just your acting, but everything else. So that was great advice from Ernie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's yes. Never let the sun go down on your anger. It's, yeah. Yeah. Never let the, you know, stay, if you got to stay up two days and work it out, do that. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, uh, the last time I saw him, he was 94. I was at this uh, event, and um, <sighs> he turned to his wife. And I, I'm in my 60s, 
you know, late 60s then or something. And he says, honey, this is the young boy I did Willard with. <laughs> and I said, yeah, thank you. You're the only one who called me a young boy now. <laughs> but I know his daughter, Nancy, and she had an event and she had these little trees that she gave, sort of lemon, orange trees that they gave in, 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 in you know, as gifts, mm. giving it. And I have it, and I've carried it with me in a bucket everywhere to try to glow it. And now finally, I've planted it in my backyard, and you know, got fifteen oranges this uh, this uh, this summer. So they're Ernie's oranges. Wow! 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 I'd like to move you on a bit to um, a 1972 film uh, that you did with Burt Lancaster, oh, Alzana's wow. Raid. Alzana's Raid. Yes. Was that the first western that you've done? Yes. Um, oh, see, that's my poster right there. There's Bert. Indeed, it is. Yeah. Oh, I'll tell you. I should tell you some of this at the beginning. The, the uh, we're out on horseback, and the sun is setting. We got about two minutes to shoot this scene. We're on a two horse, uh, two horses in a two shot with a truck with fifty cavalry behind us, and the sun's setting on the painted desert behind us. And he's saying, "So, son." Uh, you went to NYU. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah, a hell of a school. Where do you live? I said, oh, I live uh, down by 72nd. He says, oh, you know the corner of 72nd uh, right on Central Park West there, that big tall building. Shelley Winters lives there. Hell of a broad. Yeah, we had a thing. You know, I sort of knocked her up in 85, 54. <laughs> and he's moving his horse back a little bit. So in a two shot, when you move your horse back, this person with this horseback is the center of attention. This person is just kind of talking to him. <laughs> it's sort of a trick. So I, uh, I tried that, and uh, that happened with me the same way. And uh, so I started moving my horseback. And finally, he turned, he looked at me, he said, the young lieutenant is not as innocent as he seems. Are you, you little son of a bitch? <laughs> and it was great. And we, we became good friends. He loved being challenged. Uh, as an actor on camera. And he always um, encouraged that. That was always some way that he encouraged that. And it was, uh, it was, I, I really enjoyed that. And he, he said, you're a hell of an actor that goes without saying, you don't use rehearsal time properly. You try to give the performance for the sound man. You give another performance for the man laying the marks over there. You certainly give a performance for any girl extras standing around. He says, comes time to the close-up, you've shot your wad. It's like making love to a woman or whoever you may make love to. I don't know. You can't try to come all at once. You have to think of foreplay. And that's your rehearsal. And you build that and you save it for the close-up. And the close-up is uh, the money. And you work with what you got. You got that marvelous head of hair. I, I have uh, baby blues, the pearly whites. I work with them. <laughs> so, but, uh, so that was, that was Bert. Wow. Wow. That's a great piece of advice for actors. I was just looking at them. Um, oh, like it really was. I, and I'm, it really was. And, you know, I remember as a kid working with him, I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm, I'm acting him off the screen. All the, the, the stuff I'm doing. And then I would see the rushes um, that we shot that day. And there would be like this little chihuahua dancing around a bulldog. And the bulldog is just sort of, all right, that's good, son. That's good what you're doing. That's good what you're doing. Yeah. You'll learn. 
you'll learn something, which is his last line to me in the film, you'll learn. And it's true. And I did learn. And as, as I've gotten older over the years, you learn, you know, save it for the close up. Yeah. yeah. Save it I, for some, or, or some moment that really means something in a, in a yeah. film, in a play and in life, you know, don't, <laughs> shoot your wad <laughs> yes. I'm sorry you're gonna to have to edit this I guess. No, no 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 not at all no I assume adults are watching this and, 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 I and, 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 absolutely fine but you do remind you know when I was at drama school it's like Nick yeah. you're achieving you're achieving a performance of 90 percent but you're giving 110 you need oh. to work on that it's like, oh yeah, yeah you're just trying yeah. too hard too big. Well, that's true you know yeah. or yeah. give 75 percent let the audience do the other 25 percent yeah. you know in, instead of people crying if you're holding it back and trying not to the audience does yeah yeah, yeah. no absolutely which kind of brings me on in a strange way to uh, a performance of yours which i have to say i found extraordinary and that's in 1977's short eyes short eyes yes i'm glad you are one of the three people that saw that film well it's it's available on youtube folks and go and well look yes i say the only reason i hesitate is because it's an emotional and difficult it, it's a ride like you wouldn't believe and it and, and the reason it is is because it is so uh, original and um, honest because it's a prison film shot by prisoners. And it was shot in the tombs, which no longer exist in New York City. And all the, all the actors originated their roles as a work in progress, as a theater piece in Sing Sing. And they're all, they were all, they're, and they're all dead now. Um, one or two are still alive, but for the most part, it was, you know, a very precarious lifestyle. The kid playing cupcakes in it ended up uh, um, with a refrigerator dumped on him, waiting to testify for a triple murder. The guy, um, another guy was beat over the head with a baseball bat, breaking into somebody's house a year later up in White Plains. Miguel Pinheiro, who was sort of the Eugene O'Neill, John Genet of, of theater American, uh, uh, died of AIDS. Uh, and um, most of them just got wiped out. But, it, but the film itself is so powerful. It's a story of a child molester who's thrown into a holding cell by a guard who says, my daughter was molested by one of you sons of bitches. You know what to do with them. And it goes from there. And it becomes a passion play about prisoners having to decide whether or not they're going to revenge um, what, what's going to happen with this guy. And the guy is in, innocent. You know, he's innocent of this crime, but he's, you know, he's, he's sort of meant word. And, and it just, I don't want to give too much away, but it's a, it's a really powerful piece. And it, if, as far as I'm concerned, it really launched things for me because Pauline Kale got to see it and she went nuts over it. I mean, she thought that was one of the greatest films of the year. She and three other people saw it. Nobody else saw it. Even to this day, not many people have seen Short Eyes. Every once in a while, I'll talk to Oliver Stone or, or Paul Mazursky, or something, and they said, oh, yeah, short eyes. So that was, that was good work. 
<laughs> in it, the midst of the sea of garbage that I've done. <laughs> you had some standout films, which I think you should be incredibly yes. proud of, and that is definitely one well, of them. I mean, I made 330 or yeah. 40 when I looked the last time on IMDb, so they can't all be, you know, <laughs> Steven Spielberg gems. No, but they, I hadn't realized that's how it came. I was watching it this afternoon and thought, yes, it feels like a stage play because it it's, uh, yeah, and it feels like it because you get the yeah. long speeches and you get, and it is such a self contained thing. But the moment, but the thing is, it holds every moment, holds. And it was, I think, you know, um, the, the performances are all incredible because they're so real. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's right there. It's. I think it's one of the, the, the there's 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 your and I didn't actually time it, but I think it's. I reckon it must be about an eight minute monologue. Yeah. Um, there's the discussion. It's really interesting because we shot that in one take with a big big camera on it. There weren't any cuts in that. I mean, there were, but we shot it just like a stage play, and I worked on that for four weeks, and uh, I. Uh, I, the director, Robert Young, was just the most wonderful director. Um, he was just so um, much a sponge to everybody there and and such a giving director. And uh, I had to start the monologue hysterically crying and go from there into an eight-minute story of my life. And I was beside myself, and I was literally banging my head on the walls of, of one of the cells. We were in the tombs shooting. Mm. The tombs. Actually, the Croatian terrorists would come by being led across, and we'd, they'd see us shooting down below. But um, uh, he said, stop, stop, don't do that. You're going to get an egg on your head, and then you won't match. Um you're already there. You're already there. You are enough. What you're doing is enough. Action. Boom. And that was it. Uh, that's all I needed. That was the wind beneath the wings I needed to, to take that scene. And it, it's, it's one that even at this stage of my life, I'm very proud of. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really tough stuff. It's really tough, grisly, hard stuff. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Get to do that. Yes, yeah. so as I say, extraordinary. And now I understand why it's so powerful because the, mm -hmm. the scene of cupcake, the fate of cupcake being discussed by the other men around him is, is yeah. incredibly difficult, as far as I'm concerned, as well. You, I mean, you you spent some time doing theatre. In the 1980s, things like The Elephant Man, Glass Menagerie yeah. with Jessica Tandy and so on. Were you doing that kind of the same time as doing the film career stuff, or was this a go back and forth and back and forth? Uh, you know, I was, it was an interesting time. I was, uh, I ended up in Hollywood. It was an easy life. It was, uh, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll and all the, all of that. And then going back to New York to, to do the work when things would, become meaningless in LA, which, uh, and I, I would have an opportunity. I went back and did the elephant man for six months. Yeah. Six months on Broadway. And 
got back to the the passion that uh, was there. Now that that the Elephant Man's interesting because it's a trick part. Everybody else does all the work, and you get all the glory. That doesn't usually happen. Uh, I I was I remember doing the front page in the Elephant Man in in tandem at the same time when I did it again up at Long Wharf. And uh, the front page, I was playing Hildy, who works his ass off. And um, then Walter, who uh, Brian Dennehy was playing, Walter comes in, takes the play in the third act. And, and you're the, you're the uh, straight man for all of the jokes that come in. And you really work your ass off. And the elephant man, oh, he's never had a woman. He's been in suffered his whole life. He's been here. Here he comes now. Sometimes I think I'm so big because my head is so full of dreams you know and you got all these great lines and everybody else does all the work and it was interesting because uh critics and reviewers said yeah yeah he was okay and front page but elephant man oh every breath and it's interesting because they don't know they haven't a clue what an actor does i think it's bernard shaw who described um uh critics are like eunuchs <laughs> they know how it's done. They see it done every night, but they can't right. do it themselves. Yeah, that's yeah, true. yeah, yeah. Um, and getting the 19- in fact, at the end of the 1980s, you made a, another really important film for you, A Longtime Companion. Mm-hmm. 1989. Yes, yes, yes. How did mm-hmm. that come about? I auditioned for Craig Lucas. Uh, my wife at the time, Lisa Pelican, had just done Blue Window with Craig Lucas and Norman Rene right. as a play. In, uh, and I had seen that. And they were, and we were in, I was doing, I guess, I don't know what I was doing, the cocktail hour? Something, yeah, I think so, in, in New York. And I auditioned for Craig and Norman. And I ended up getting the part. Yes, yes, it was the cocktail hour. I remember right. Was right. Holland Taylor. I remember bringing the script in to show her, and she left teardrops all over the page. And I said, "Yeah, that's a it's a great scene, isn't it?" She said, "Yeah." So um, she played my sister in the cocktail hour. Right, 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 right. Anyway, um, so I ended up doing that while while I was there, and it was uh, it was an experience like none other. I mean, it changed my life. It was uh, quite, uh, in what way you want to say? I I don't don't know where to begin. Um, I can take you into a moment and into a scene where, uh, let go. There's this scene where I'm I'm coaxing my lover to let go and die. I'm helping him through the gate, as it were. And when we were shooting that scene, we were in an apartment on Riverside Drive, and the woman found out it was a movie about AIDS, and she thought it was a murder mystery, and she got really uh, shorts in a bunch, and she wanted more money, and we were trying to find the producer. Because it was a, you know, we were all making 500 bucks a week or something to do the film in the first place. And uh, so we got thrown out. And I looked down on Riverside Drive, and there was uh, um, all of Riverside Drive had been sprayed and snowed in and there were a hundred um it looked to me like a hundred extras dressed in 40s costumes big trucks everywhere a giant production leakos and lights and everything everywhere and sitting down below as i walked down 
waiting for them to find uh, Lindsay to get thousand bucks to pay off this woman. I found uh, uh, two friends, Myron Silver and Paul Masursky, sitting on two chairs in the middle of this. And I walked up and I said, yeah, so you guys are making a big movie. They said, yeah, yeah, we're making a big, <laughs> we're lucky. It's a big production. I said, God, I wish I could just get into a situation like this where I could even have my own trailer or, you know, a dressing room maybe or, a, you know, something per diem. Well, boy, that would be nice. Something like this. Is, boy, to get on a big production like this. Yeah. Cut to a year later. I'm nominated for the Academy Award. I'm sitting in the third row on the end. And behind me, nominated for a movie called Reversal of Fortune, is um, Ron Silver. He comes up over his chair during the commercial and tops me on the shoulder and said, the movie was called Enemies, a love story. It lasted a weekend. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> so that's... Uh, yeah, yeah. Because I was, I was, I was wondering. Because I mean, I was acting in, in the nineteen eighties as well, and I remember in the UK, and being uh -huh. very, and being very clearly told by my manager that I couldn't come out. It was really important, yeah, not not to, to come admit, out, yeah, yeah, because you, you know you would not get cast much as the right, yeah, as, yeah. So I was wondering, you know, how br how brave at the time, how brave a well, see, step. that's the thing. The time, that's 30 years ago, you mm -hmm. know, and I did get a lot of crap for it from everything. Even my manager at the time told me. Mm -hmm. And my manager died of AIDS, and um, so did my commercial agent and uh, my publicist, all within that same time. And um, a number of people were all dying in 1991 at the height. But now, um, people are getting shit for playing gay parts that aren't gay. It's just, you know, you know and I think, what, what, what happened? When did things get so PC that uh, acting suddenly wasn't about acting anymore? You had to be a part in order to play it. Uh, what happened? It's it's very interesting, isn't it? I th I, I, and I think it's a discussion that should be having how. I a hope lot so. more. Yeah, I, I, I think yeah. really I've gone. The the pendulum does swing back and forth. You know, you've got the the revolt and the revolution, and then yeah. comes the terror. Oh, everything and Me Too and and all movements. Things swing uh, to another extreme to the point where people become afraid of moving or yeah. saying. Yeah, no, and, I, and, it, and it's not to denigrate or say how important the Me Too movement is. Exactly. And, and as everything, and I mean, not to say it at all. I'm just mm. saying the history of human existence is yeah. always about that. Yeah. You, 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 the world changes, it evolves, and then it swings back, and there's a re reaction to that change. Yes, yeah. Back and forth, and that's, yeah. that's evolution, yeah. I guess. Yes, I, but I'm, you know, I'm suddenly reminded of Laurence Olivier playing um, Othello. Yes, exactly. On, on stage, he, on, on film. Yeah, and so he on. says, I've discovered a wonderful new drug called Valium. It really lowers my voice. <laughs> but I remember him, I remember him playing that, and, you know, that would be outrageous in this day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, another, another film which I've, I found is... Um, 
it feels very relevant to what's going on today. And that was The Crucible, which yes. you played him with Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, Winona Ryder, and the great Paul Sch Schofield. Yes. What was that experience like? And, and Arthur Miller. Uh, yeah, and Arthur Miller. Yeah, sorry, the writer of the play. Yeah. <laughs> Sitting back looking at the video village. Yeah, that was, uh, I was overwhelmed with uh, working with great talent, you know, uh, amazing. Uh, Daniel would ride to work on a horse. Nobody knew where he came from. He would build, he had been there for months building the set with the set designers using the six, you know, the 17th century nails that were square headed that were cutting out. And, and those tools, they didn't use saws and stuff. They, they, they built it like they were pilgrims, you know, like they are Puritans. Sorry. Sorry to the pilgrims. <laughs> um, and uh, he was amazing. And um rehearsal we had a, a very interesting time i just you know have was was about to have a son and he'd just have one and showed baby pictures and all friendly and everything was great and he'd say i don't like to rehearse i just like to do it i wish we didn't have to rehearse and um got into shooting and suddenly everything changed and he wouldn't talk to me and he wouldn't do anything and he would mess with me. And, you know, I had a, I was Reverend Paris playing the head of the church and he would put stuff in my pew that stank so he could get the ambiance of, of 16th, you know, the 1690s. And, and I'm thinking, me really, or I'd sit in a place and, and uh, I'd get up to get something. I come back, he'd be sitting in that chair, you know, stuff like that and i finally said i turned to jeffrey jones one day and i said what, what the hell is his problem and he says we're his enemies we're his enemies and we were playing his enemies in the park so this goes on for 12 weeks and we shot from summer into winter and we shot in sequence and we shot all the way through in to sequence and uh Finally, we get to the end of the shoot, and we're out in the freezing cold on the beach. And because it is my name, and I cannot have another, and he's doing that, and we're all, you know, weeping at the end as they about to hang him. And the sun goes down, and the director Nick says, uh, "Well, uh, that's it. I, I think uh, we, we got our film. I think we're done." And I looked over at Daniel, and Daniel goes, and I fell into his arms, and I started to weep. I actually started to cry. I mean, he says, I'm sorry. I know it was tough. I know it was tough the whole time. I said, yeah, yeah, but it's a good, it's a good one, isn't it? Yeah. And at one time, I had given him about a little granddad whittling knife because he's using some 1690s crap and chopping his hands all up while he whittled. He'd whittle a lot. So I just handed it to him during the course of the shoot. And he didn't say thank you or anything. But he kept it. I saw him years later at a tribute to Arthur Miller. And I went up to him and I said, Daniel, how are you? He said, I still have my knife. 
<laughs> make shoes with it. I make shoes with it. So uh, yeah, that was that was Daniel and Arthur Miller, who uh, Jesus had got, had inspired me to become an actor in the first place. Because going back to Penn State when I did that I, I, uh, theater appreciation course, I had to say uh, they gave us little um, little paragraphs to memorize to try to present. And I told Arthur Miller, I said, to, you know, I read a little paragraph you wrote one time and uh, it got me to be an actor. It's the reason I'm an actor. He said, oh, what was that? I said, oh, it was, um, there is a certain immortality that comes with acting, not with the plaudits or the awards, but through the knowledge an actor carries with him to his dying day, that on a certain afternoon in a dusty and empty theater, he cast a shadow of a being that was not himself, but a distillation of everything he had ever thought or observed. All the unsingable heart song that the ordinary man may feel but never utter, he gives voice to, and in so doing, he somehow joins the ages. I said, I memorized that and I learned that, and that's what I wanted to do. He said, oh, yeah, that's in the that's in the essays I wrote. That was about Lee, Lee J. Cobb, when he was doing um, Death of a Salesman. You know, we were, I wanted to fire him. He was he, he, Mildred Dunnick and uh, uh, Kennedy and all of them were getting their parts, and they were really coming together. And he just would sit there like a walrus on a stool and mumble to himself. And I said to Kazan, I said, shall we fire him? And he said, uh, no, give him time. And he said, and then one day he was looking up at the ceiling and he, he started talking about a crack in the ceiling and there was no crack in the ceiling. But there was Willie Loman. Boom. The greatest performance in the mid-century American theater. Yeah. It was Willie Loman. I said, that's when I wrote that. I said, oh, thank you. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That, that's extraordinary. Listen, we're, um, we have amazingly <laughs> moved. <laughs> we, we've amazingly moved through so much of it. There are a couple of other things because we're about three quarters of an hour in now and, and things that I wanted to touch upon. Um, the X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> That's very easy to take. Changing gears. Mm -hmm. <laughs> from, from, this no. is not from the sublime to the ridiculous at all, yeah. but fr from extraordinary performance. And it is mm -hmm. a great part and very moving. I was curious, were you a fan of the comics? Did you know much about the X-Men? No, I knew nothing about it, but I had, um, this is another sh Shaggy Dog story, but I might as well go back. Um sure. I was I, I I was called to do a film by Peter Norton, who was a, was a friend. Who he said, "Come in to the last two weeks. I'm doing this sort of uh, Huckleberry Finn thing, and it's about AIDS. And these two kids go down the river trying to find a cure in New Orleans. And there's one boy you'd worked with before, Joey Mazzello. He and Reef, Reese Witherspoon. I played their their father in a movie of the week." And he said, and there's this other kid, Brad Renfro, and you can come in and you'll be the, the doctor that's in the last couple of scenes at the end of the movie. Would you do that? I said, yeah, I'll come down. So I'm driving down and 
um, the, you always ask the the driver on the way to the set what what um, you know what's going on, and he says, "Well, this kid, this one kid, this uh, Renfro kid, you know, he was uh, he was discovered." by uh, Joel Schumacher and for the client and he's uh, he's out of control and he I mean he steals cars and drives everybody crazy I mean he's got um, so nobody knows how to control him so I get to the set and um, little Joey Mazzello runs up Bruce how are you and I say hug and uh, Brad sort of he's 12 at the time I think he saunters up to me and says so who the fuck and I grabbed him in a headlock. And I said, listen, you little fucker, I don't care if they fire me or not. Don't pull any shit with me. I'll pull your head off. And I let him go. He said, I got a, got a guitar. You want to hear it? I said, yeah, I'd love to hear it. He said, I really want to direct. I said, okay. So, so be that as it may, I became friends with Brad. And a few years later, um, somebody asked me to do a reading of um, a play that he was going to star in with Ian McKellen called Act Pupil mm. by a young man named uh, Brian Singer, who looked as old as Brad. And um, he wanted me to play his dad. So I did. I played his dad in Act Pupil sitting out there one day on the lawn in the back, Brian Singer says, uh, you know, I'm thinking of this thing called X-Men. I said, well, and I say, as I say to all directors, well, if you get a big break, you know, call me, call me. He did. And I was the first one cast in X-Men. And uh, every frame of that film is related to the genius of Brian Singer. Brian Singer made that whole franchise out of his, him, him, He's he's just a really it's amazing what he what he did right right so story of X Men so once I got into that we were all melting and everything else and the Wicked Witch of the East was my motivation I guess for melting on the table and stuff but they said oh that's great work and the young kids that I meet saying oh that was great how you melted on the table I said yeah well that's something I guess one of the things I did. <laughs> With a little help from CGI. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Extraordinary the things that one was remembered for. Um, well, it depends on your age. Yes. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yes. Yeah. When you first meet, an, you know, when you first meet a, an actor's performance. And you, I mean, you, obviously you're still working and I was curious about, you did a wonderful part in a film called Lords of Salem. Direct. Oh, Rob Zombie. Yeah. Rob Zombie. Uh, <laughs> How was that? Huh? How was that experience? That was fun because he's such a collaborator. Rob is really a great collaborator. You know, he, you know, goes off this way and that and everything else, but he really loves actors and he really loves people. And he's a kind of guy that's a, uh, people work with him over and over again. I met, I guess through Malcolm McDowell and it's eventually how I met Chris, uh, who's my agent, uh, my manager now, Chris, uh, uh, Chris yeah, who's my manager, and uh, that's how I met him because he was always a, a big horror geek, and um, I met that I met him through that and all the all the the witches that uh, beat me to death. D, yeah, D, I was talking. To, yeah, 
and then Judy. Yeah, let's yeah, talk. D, D Wallace is uh, both thrown over the years. She's thrown a fettuccine in my lap and beaten me to death with a frying pan. So we we have a loving relationship. And then my wife and something else. So we we <laughs> each other over the years. <laughs> and and, and I, I have great joy of. Um, interviewing a gentleman called Daniel Krauss last year. Who yes, yes, who wrote, who, who uh, is a novelist who finished uh, George Romero's, uh, who oh got, well, I love George through Chris. I remember having some, you know, wonderful times with George at these, uh, you know, uh, celebrity horror conventions and things and, you know, bratwurst and beer sitting out uh, and, Pittsburgh or, you know, Pacoima or wherever. <laughs> George and George, uh, you know, just a wonderful guy who we've just lost. Yes. Yeah. But uh, he started to write his opus, you know, the, the living dead. Yes. And um, um, Mr. Krauss took over for him and finished when he died. And I got to do the, uh, the voice book which was really weird during COVID to be sitting in a little booth doing 600 pages of <laughs> phlegm and gore and blood and sliding around on an aircraft carrier or <laughs> with because <with> <laughs> it certainly, it has have its, uh, have its uh, quantity of George Romero. Yes. Well, it, 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 I'd have to say I loved because to prepare. I didn't have time to read the entire book between yes. it being confirmed that Daniel would come on the show. Yes. So I got to listen to you. Uh, oh, yeah, how was I? Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Really, you both were. I, I can't remember. Well, thank, the, you. Thank, uh, you. thank you. The actress you worked with. But um, what else was are you going to say on camera? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, say again. Very good, but uh, you know, curiously banal. <laughs> no, it's center. It, it's 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 a great reading. It, it, it's, it is doing yeah, the Trump character was the most interesting for me at the time because it was just starting up to become the game. We play so many characters, and 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 it's, it's an extraordinary book. <laughs> now, before we finish off. Um, there's a couple of things I'd like to ask you, if I may, as a, uh -huh. a series of questions that I ask everybody, um, mm -hmm. which is titled The Luggage in the Crypt. It's the luggage in the crypt. <laughs> crypt. <laughs> yeah, sounds like uh, something to do at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I, guess I told you Chris. Take to the crypt? What would you take with you to the coffin? No? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, what would you take with you if you had to think about, okay, now, I have to say, you know, I want to change the name of this to Wanted on Voyage, something slightly more cheerful. Oh, but, yeah, no, right. But you take with you on the voyage. The great. Oh, well, the, certainly my book of Shakespeare, because uh, Shakespeare is something that keeps me mentally alert now. I keep trying to work on characters I could no longer play, uh, avoiding Lear at all costs. 
Why um, avoiding Leah? Sorry. Well, I, it's, it's just too difficult. <laughs> too, I, I was I, I I played a young you know I played like the king, king of France and stuff in Lee J Cobb's production, and right. that production damn near killed him. And I, I I watched it and watched it and watched it every night. But I did take away a great thing from it, which was from Phil Bosco, and that was. Um, Shakespeare's longest insult that uh, I don't know if I still remember. Let me say what something like uh, uh, Reagan's, you know, Butler is giving a, sh a shitty time to Kent and he's now preening and says, and he pushes him out of the way. He says, Dost thou know who I am? And Kent says, I know thee. He says, What dost thou know me for? Knave, rogue, an eater of broken meats, a base, proud, shallow, beggarly, three-suited, hundred-pound, filthy-worsted, stalking knave, a horson, glass-gazing, lily-livered, action-taking, super-serviceable, finical rogue, a one-trunk inheriting slave, a bored who would be a bored to any good service, but ought not but the composition of a knave, a beggar, a pander, a coward, and the son and heir of a mongrel bitch. And one I will beat into clamorous whining if thou deniest the least syllable of thy addition. So I remember that from Lear. So that, that's what's Lear. It's certainly not Lear's speech, but it's one of my favorites. Thanks <laughs> for William Morris agents. <laughs> what, what about a film? Film? Mm. Uh, Amarcord, I would say, probably springs to mind. Uh, Fellini's Amarcord is my one of my all-time favorite films. I always go back and see because it has such wonderful performances in it. And it's Fellini at his most uh, effusive and hopeful. And it's his, it's his story uh, as a young man growing up. And the you begin to see where all of those characters came from in his hometown and you know the sex driver watching the big butts on the bicycles riding away as the young kids watch it's i, I just love that film i love it so much and the right. crazy uncle in the tree screaming i want a woman i want a woman and that little nun comes back to get him out after you know, being up there for hours, you know, it's just filled with wonderful little events. It's a story of, it's his, our town. Right. Right. Should probably be another one. I think our town is probably one of my all time favorite plays since I saw it in high school, uh, all the way through, but it, and, and skin of our teeth. Right. I love Thornton Wilder. I think he just had a wonderful sense of, um, that and uh what else would i take i take my uh oil paints I, 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 oh, yes, now after all this time i started painting again because i gave it up when i became an actor i stopped painting i stopped doing it sorry i gotta forgive me uh okay um i started painting uh once again i rem i had uh, worked with henry fonda who was a great painter and he um, he said, why'd you stop? Because I showed him some. He said, this is good. And he was a terrific, uh, very detailed, illustrative painter. And, right. Uh, 
And I said, well, I, I was never happy with my results. And he said, well, that's what's wrong with your acting. You're, you're all concerned about your results. And it's not about the results. It's about the journey. You'll never get it right. You never do. Nobody ever does. The thing is to enjoy doing the job, doing it yourself. And so that's what I've come back to now. You know, finally, I'm not so concerned about the results. I just enjoy working on something and trying to get better at it. Right. Uh, what about a favorite food or, or beverage? What? <laughs> <laughs> if I got to work or if, if I don't get off the island, you know, I'm just going to go crazy for um, any kind of cheeseburger pasta crap that I can eat that my wife doesn't let me eat. And, <laughs> What's for dinner? I get a salad tonight. Okay, so uh, I just eat all 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 crap food right. that I possibly could. That's filled with salt or, or sugar or any of that stuff that I can't have. Right, right. Okay. Yes, I understand that one. What about a music, an album? Ooh, boy, that's tough. Um, I I really need to take an anthology because you know there's so many songs I like. It, it's it's tough because I grew up in the 60s and the 70s and everybody from, you know, uh, Simon Garfunkel and the Stones and uh, that, that was my hero. Right. Uh, right. So it's, it would be tough. Also, the, um, the Eagles. I guess I'd have to take the Eagles. Eagles would be the one that I would take. Right. I love their music, especially Don Henley, some of his lyrics, New York Minute and stuff springs to mind. Ah. Always at the door. That sounds that sounds great. And what about a luxury? A luxury? Mm. Mm. <laughs> Shakespeare's second best bed springs to mind. <laughs> I would like something that uh, I'd finally like to get a a, a bed that is really great. You know, you hit one every once in a while. And uh, if you get to stay at the plaza or something where they make them th that are this thick now with this much something else on top. And that's great. I like to get a bed like that. Maybe. Right, right. That sounds like a very sensible choice. And I know what you mean that finding an absolutely <laughs> perfect bed because you know, you sleep well, and that makes the rest of life so much easier. That's funny, you know, a few years younger, it would be you know, a nice playboy bunny. <laughs> Beds be nice now, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, um, of course, guess an, a, a, an Epicurean cook would be great. Yes, yeah. I'm re I'm lucky. I'm I'm married to one. Um, he's very good. Oh, you are lucky. That's I'm good. I remember lucky. Barbara Rush had me at dinner one time that James Beard cooked dinner. That was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Wow! Now, um. Just before we leave you, I just wanted to wonder what you're up to at the moment. I know you recently you did a film in Spain. <clears throat> did a film in Spain? Did a film in Spain. I just did a, a film with Barbara Hershey for the first time since we, we started together. Now we're getting towards the end as we do. And we it's called The Manor. And it's a, a Bloomhouse uh, horror film. Right. So, and I'm... Um, I'm, I'm recurring on Ozark, which is a TV series for its last season, and um, seeing what else crawls out of the, the woodwork when uh, COVID lets up a bit.
And you mentioned earlier on the the glow and the dark? The glow and the darkness, yes. I got to Spain um, to shoot um, um, a, a mini-series over there. Right. That right. basically takes place during the Crusades. Uh, uh. You know, uh, I play one of the popes, and, uh, you know, I get to the Second Crusade, and that kills me, and then Stephen Burkhoff takes over and makes things worse, and, you know, it goes from there. Wow. Well, now there is a fascinating actor. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Especially as a Pope. <clears throat> yes, yes. You understand the insanity of uh, the Crusades. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this this is brilliant. And thank you so much for spending some time with me because this has been oh, a great deal you. of fun. It's been fun. Fun indeed. Good. I shall let you go, sir. Enjoy the rest of your day. And, um, thank you. Thank you. My thanks again to Bruce Davison. What a wonderful impressionist he is. And I love that really long quote from Arthur Miller. Join me next week on The Chattering Hour. And in the meantime, stay safe and well. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Jared Friedrich and Amanda Rome West. Composer Kevin McLeod, copyright Tea Time Productions. Mm-hmm.